Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rapport Diamond podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz. I'm the senior analyst and news editor at Rapport. Today, we have with us Julianne Kippenberg, who is the Associate Director for Children's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. We invited Julianne to the podcast after Human Rights Watch published a report on responsible sourcing practices of the diamond and jewelry trade, which was titled Sparkling Jewels, Opaque Supply Chains, Jewelry Companies Changing Sourcing Practices and COVID-19 which is quite a, quite a mouthful, but um, it gives you an idea of the extent of that report. And uh, our intention is to discuss the report and, and its important findings with Julianne. So thank you for joining us, Julianne, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure, and we appreciate your, your time. Um, so I think the first thing that comes to mind when you know in introducing you is is actually your, is your title being the director of children's rights um, and associating that with the report about the jewelry industry and 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 maybe it's a, it's a way to sort of introduce an eye opener for for our listeners um you know what what prompted human rights watch to pursue this report and and i guess more specifically what your involvement in in the report from a children's rights perspective you know, what prompted us really is that we've done so much research on human rights abuses taking place in the context of gold and diamond mining. And myself, I have done um, extensive research on child labor in mining, particularly child labor in gold mining um, in small scale gold mines in various countries, for example, Ghana, Tanzania, Philippines and Mali. Um, and having done that work and also having um, done other work at Human Rights Watch on other kinds of child rights abuses in the context of mining, for example, children being affected by, by resettlements or by um, toxic pollution um, or those kinds of abuses, we actually felt it would be really important to pursue this further and understand um, what steps companies are taking to respect children's rights in their supply chains. In doing that, we decided to go further. So our report is not just about children's rights or child labor. Um, it is really about the whole gamut of um, human rights uh, issues. But uh, child rights and child labor specifically um, has really been our entry point. As far as Rapport is concerned, we're, we're a publication that's very focused on the diamond industry. Were your findings in terms of the, the children's rights and, and the vulnerabilities that, um, that were exposed um, for, for children in, in mining um, associated with diamond mining, or was it more on the broader scale um, of other commodities affecting um, the jewelry industry, gold, and, and other commodities? Right. We have um, done research, for example, in Zimbabwe, where children's rights have definitely also been um, impacted um, by, by diamond mining. So uh, quite a few years ago, ago, of course, there was a whole range of abuses, including forced labor and child labor in the Maronga diamond fields. Um, and more recently, there have been, for example, protests um, against, um, you know, what was perceived as exploitation of diamonds without a community benefiting in that same area. And children have been among those who've actually been hospitalized after protests, for example, when in 2018 security forces beat um, and otherwise abused residents that were protesting. Um, so there have been impacts on children. Um, but the focus has there been more on the rights of adults, you know, for example, um, artisanal miners or people accused of artisanal mining illegally have been um, 
subjected to really serious violence by private security personnel of the Zimbabwe Consolidated Diamond Companies, um, security personnel. And that has, of course, been against adults. But we've seen this in other settings too. For example, we've received reports about um, an increase actually in child labor um, in both gold and diamond small-scale mines in the Central African Republic since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, okay, and I mean that's that's all very concerning, and um, and and we will get to to those more those more specific points um, as our discussion unfolds. Um, but but you, you, the report wasn't all negative. The headline that you, that um, Human Rights Watch put out was that um, the industry has made some improvements in um, in its uh, sourcing practices, although it has a long way to go. In the um, to, to quote the report, so absolutely. Um, so I was, I was wondering, how, you know, it's been a, a week or two since the, I think a week since the report was published. How, how has it been received from both within the jewelry industry and and without? Absolutely. I mean, I just want to sort of quickly jump in to say yes. Um, it is definitely not a report that only says everything is negative. We have actually done a similar kind of report at the beginning of 2018, and then those like roughly two and a half years since then. We've definitely seen some progress, and that's what we're sort of tracking in the report. Um, how has the report been received? I mean, we've had a lot of interest, particularly from uh, the jewelry industry. So many jewelry companies have been in touch. We've been able to engage with most of the companies that we've profiled in the report, both by letter, but also by you know conference calls and meetings where possible. Um, we have... Um, had this um, launch event where that was well attended by industry, like companies, but also industry representatives um, and, um, you know, people who are sort of generally working in the space, like experts, um, NGOs and so on. We've also had some interest from media, you know, both um, industry media like yourselves, um, as well as others. Um, so there's generally been quite quite a good response. One thing that's been really interesting for us is that um, as we um, gave the companies the heads up that the report is now about to come out, and we'd of course been in touch with them before, um, they uh, some of them shared with us sort of new updates on, on what had been happening um, and what they'd been doing. And I mean, that just confirms the sense for us that the com- many of the companies that we're profiling are taking responsible sourcing seriously and are doing um, what they are, are taking steps to move in the right direction, for example, um, improving their transparency and then disclosing more information about steps they're taking or about the names of their suppliers or um, increasing traceability. So it's, it's quite positive to see that. Yeah, and, and, and just for the sake of our, our listeners who might not be familiar with the report, Human Rights Watch, it seemed that there were two, two approaches. The, the one was to outline the effect of COVID um, and the current situation is having on, um, on the industry uh, in, in terms of its um, monitoring of human rights and, and the vulnerabilities that have come to surface as a result of COVID. Um, and the second was the um, survey that you mentioned of um, 15 major jewellery companies and looking at their responsible sourcing practices, their levels of transparency and disclosure um, and various aspects of their 
um, of their uh, their programs that they have in place when when um, sourcing for their jewelry lines. Maybe let's start with the first point: the impact of COVID has had on on the industry's sourcing practices. Can you maybe expound on some of the findings or concerns that you expressed in the report for the short term that uh, that have come to light in terms of COVID? Yes. So what has happened since the beginning of the pandemic is that the mining industry has been, broadly speaking, very affected. Um, Of course, there's the immediate issue of COVID-19, you know, posing a health threat to workers, particularly when they, for example, work in closed spaces such as underground. And there have been some cases of of outbreaks. One example for that is uh, the world's deepest um, gold mine in South Africa. But there have been other outbreaks as well. Then, of course, there's the sort of wider economic impact, and that we've seen particularly with regards to small-scale mining communities who have really lost um, necessary livelihood and income and, as a result, faced food insecurity. And that has been reported from from many different countries where either artisanal diamond mining or artisanal gold mining is taking place. Two examples for that with regards to diamonds would be Um, Guinea um, and the Central African Republic. And in both those countries, that has been reported. And in both those countries, there's also been uh, reports about an increase in child labor uh, because families are now increasingly struggling and where they still do have mining operations going, um, they will then often also send their children to work there. But I should point out that at the same time, there's been a sort of a reduction in productivity and in operations in many countries, including Guinea and Central African Republic, because trade routes have been blocked, um, you know, transport hasn't been possible, people have been in lockdowns and so on. There have been many kinds of restrictions that have meant that the trade and the the, the mining activity as well as the trade have been affected. Another um, consequence that we have observed is that in some countries, Illegal mining has either continued or even expanded. And of course, the issue there is also that the little bit of state monitoring and regulation enforcement that has been in place has largely now been rolled back because officials aren't able to move around and and monitor and so on. So we've heard that, for example, from Guinea as well, where there's been an increase in gold and diamond illegal mining operations. Small scale. I, I guess governments are, are have have um, have COVID to deal with. So so um, the illegal mining organisers have sort of capitalised on that um, lack of oversight from from officials and um, and taken advantage of that to expand their operations. That's right. Um, that's what we've heard, for example, from from Guinea. Indeed, yes. Okay. I mean, it, it, bring, it brings an, another dimension to to our discussion. You know, when we've been covering um, COVID and COVID nineteen and the and the effect that it's had on the on the industry, um, you know, we tend to think in terms of sales and trading and 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 things like that. Mm-hmm. So it certainly brings brings a a, a more hu- another human dimension to uh, to the discussion. Um, the other interesting point that I, that I picked up in the um, in the report was that as jewelry companies have um, had to close or or, or, or um, you know go on lockdown and, and really struggle for their own survival, they've got a new set of priorities and and so their responsible sourcing may have fallen away. That's something that's quite relevant for looking at the the supply chain as a whole. It, it has a ripple effect to to the upstream um, operations. 
Absolutely. That is a risk. And I mean, we've seen just that, obviously, as you point out, jewelry companies themselves and watch companies under so much strain and um, in a prices management mode that they haven't really necessarily had the capacity to really focus fully on the responsible sourcing programs and um, actions that they had envisaged and so on. So that is definitely a concern. But I think what the the other aspect, and I, I can't remember if the reporter mentioned this, well, it did make the point that COVID has also sort of, as a result, I guess, highlighted the importance of responsible sourcing and, and really as, uh, you know, if, if anything, the opposite should be true that now is a time to invest in in these um, practices because it seems, and, and this is just, you know, through conversations with my friends and my, and my, and my peers, that ethical sourcing and, and these issues feel more important in this, in this, um, at this time. Yes. And at the same time, like we just discussed, um, risks may have actually increased. Now, we're not saying that human rights violations are taking place everywhere more than they did before, but there, there are definitely some areas in the world where uh, violations in, in either gold or diamond mining have increased or become sort of more sh- sharper in a way, or may, there may have also been just changes in the situation regarding the risks. And it is the uh, responsibility of companies to obviously, you know, see these risk assessments as a living thing, as a changing thing, and to adapt to these situations. So with COVID-19, they really have to reassess their risks in a way. And that hasn't necessarily been happening because companies have perhaps had their attention elsewhere. So that's definitely one of the important things we've been highlighting. And the other thing to observe is also that because of COVID and these lockdowns, it's not just that the government officials were unable to visit the mines for, for example, you know, um, monitoring regulations or that sometimes even perhaps mines have been closed down for a short time and that kind of thing. Also, other observers, um, such as local community groups or civil society groups and so on, or the media, are not necessarily able to go to these places at the moment. They are far less able to sort of make their voices heard or participate. We heard, for example, that some consultations where communities are supposed to be consulted have been moved online. And that's, of course, quite difficult when you think about, you know, locally affected communities. How can they make their voices heard well and have the right people? And do they have the connectivity? You know, do they have the ability to participate in an online consultation? And protests have, of course, then also often not been possible, like physical protests, because um, larger gathering of peoples are not, people are not necessarily allowed. So that's another kind of element to keep in mind. Mm, that, that is interesting. I would imagine that also made um, compiling the report um, or, or giving a broad assessment of the the situation in these co- uh, in these communities um, very challenging for for you or um, for for the authors of the report. Definitely, it is quite challenging at the moment to gather this kind of information. Yes, mm. which brings us to the um, to, to the other um, aspect of the report, and that is the um, the the survey of of those 15 companies. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned that, that the industry has made improvements and, and that's based on your um, assessment of these companies. I, I think the report may, uh, you know, estimated that, that these companies account for about 15% of the global industry, right? 
Yes. So, so I guess let's start with the positive. What, what improvements are, have you seen in those two years since um, the first um, uh, report that Human Rights Watch did, um, did on these um, companies? Yes. So what we've seen, and this has been sort of a slow process, not all of this, of course, has happened very recently, but in the process since then, we have seen how several companies have done more to achieve traceability for at least some of the gold or some of the diamonds. An example of that for diamonds would be the uh, company, the UK luxury jeweler Boodles, that we ranked as weak in 2018 and that we have now ranked as fair. And um, they have, for example, now um, traceability for some of their diamonds for one, from one large-scale mine. So that's one example. We're not saying that the conditions in that mine are necessarily perfect, but achieving traceability is the precondition for being able to assess human rights uh, uh, concerns properly. Um, so that's one example. There have been a number of other companies that have similarly worked to um, increase, to enhance traceability. We've also seen a number of companies that have become a little bit more or more rigorous with their requirements for their suppliers um, and have either improved or drafted what's often called like supplier codes of conduct, basically requirements, formalized written requirements for their suppliers. And that also have then sometimes made those public. So for example, Tanishk didn't have such a set of requirements, um, but has now uh, drawn one up. Uh, Boodles did have a set of requirements, but has strengthened it and made it public. Yeah, and that, I think there's others as well, probably, but those are perhaps some examples. And then several companies have also started to become a bit more open and transparent about what they're doing. So they have, for example, revealed who their suppliers are, which is a recommendation we're making that the companies should actually disclose who their direct suppliers are. Many say they can't do that because of um, you know, confidentiality issues and it would affect their business and so on. But Pandora is interesting. Um, the Danish jeweler has actually recently disclosed who their diamond supplier is, uh, an Antwerp company um, called AGK. And I mean, they're actually not, I think, sourcing a huge amount of diamonds. Obviously, Pandora is more a jeweler that, um, you know, it's not a luxury jeweler. So it's a slightly different situation perhaps. But nevertheless, it's interesting that they've actually gone that extra step to to release the name of their diamond supplier. Mm-hmm. Um Several companies have also just started to just generally report more publicly about what they're doing. So, and while this is not the the ultimate solution in the sense of you know we can now be sure that all the jewelry that's sold by that company um, is now you know definitely guaranteed to be free of human rights violations, we believe that traceability and transparency are important elements to achieving sort of robust human rights due diligence. Of course, it still also needs really solid human rights assessments. And we still see that many companies are not doing as much on that as they should. That's interesting um, because, you know, just in covering the industry, it's certainly been a a hot topic in the last, um, say, two years that we've seen Mm. a greater awareness um, of the, you know, responsible sourcing matters as an industry and and certainly more initiatives to show traceability to enable traceability you know and and, that, and that's particularly from the from the majors you know Tiffany was one of the companies that you mentioned mm-hmm. 
also made a, made a, that improvement in their traceability program. The GIA has its um, source of origin report that it's putting out. De Beers and El Rosa are more on board. In um, De Beers put out um, their their sustainability goals yesterday, um, and and it's become that that sort of corporate social responsibility message has become very central to these companies' operations or corporate messaging. So it, it feels like the industry has made strides. And, and, and perhaps, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe if you're open to suggestions that um, for the next report, that it would go beyond the retail, um, you know, looking at the, at the mining practices and, and the industry as a whole, it mm-hmm. might be, might be um, helpful for, for the industry, I think. Thank you for that suggestion um, and point well taken. It's really important to, you know, go back and have specific examples of, um, if I hear you right, uh, both human rights concerns in mining, but also the role of uh, large, either, you know, mine, in the context of diamonds, certainly the role of large uh, mining uh, companies such as the Bears and Arosa in, in this whole broader field, mm, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we did, we did cover that a little bit. And we actually um, spent some time thinking about this question. And we recognize the really important role played by just a few um, diamond mining companies. We did actually include something like a sort of a short sort of, um, yeah, we should, anyway, we included a short text box, but we had basically conversations with both De Beers and Al Rosa over exactly this issue. So we did actually go specifically to these two companies as the two major diamond miners and engaged with them over this question of traceability, in part because jewelry companies sometimes brought this up and said, well, we can't have traceability unless the company that provides us with the diamonds and our supplier and give us the full traceability. Mm. Um, and it isn't, I mean, we would agree that, uh, for example, the Bears has, but also Arosa actually, um, have both gone some way on this in terms of providing more information. So the Bears has now the DTC.com uh, website that provides more information on the mines of origin. And Arosa also is breaking down the origin doesn't go down to the mine of origin, but nevertheless goes down a little further um, to the, the region or sub-regions. Right. And, and that was actually one of, I was going to ask you that, um, that, that very question, that mm-hmm. the, the report makes a point that mine of origin is, is important. Um, and, and there's been some, some pushback within the industry on that issue that um, I think, you know, companies such as De Beers and, and El Rosa have historically felt that country of origin would be should be sufficient is it important to make that distinction that um and take that extra you know why is mine of origin so important as opposed to country of origin we believe mine of origin is important because it generally provides greater transparency and that means that the consumer but also other actors say locally affected communities or you know civil society for example can actually use that information find out more about the conditions on the ground so for example uh, what we've seen in the garment sector is that kind of transparency can be really useful for example when there are particular human rights issues labor rights issues that um, come up it helps to actually sometimes bring in the brands or the retailers that are sourcing from these places. And this is what we've learned from the, the garment sector. So we believe the same could be here um, valid too. So it could actually be helping to um, alert to human rights issues or problems and address them more quickly. 
Now, of course, it's true that a company like the Bears has the same standard um, that they apply to all their mines and also that they have a limited number of mines in you know, a limited number of countries. Nevertheless, it makes a difference whether you know that a particular stone comes from a particular mine in X country or comes from you know, a set of mines in three or four countries. Yeah? So that's the first point. It's about just having that transparency. Uh, the second point is that many customers are really interested in that kind of information. You know, there is also sort of a real, real appetite for that. And thirdly, I mean, it does basically mean that a company is more accountable. And we are applying the standard across the board. So we are not just, um, you know, looking at one particular mining company and saying, oh, but they have only seven mines or five mines or three mines that sourcing from. So therefore, it's fine if the diamonds gets mixed. What we're saying is that there needs to be standard for the whole sector. And that standard is that it is the responsibility of jewelry companies and their suppliers to ensure that your marks are respected in the mines of origin. And the best way to ensure that is to know where the mines of origin are. So that's fair enough. And I, I think that's, um, uh, that, that's something that the, the, in, the industry is taking on board. My concern, I think, is that perhaps we're creating a, a segmented market. You know, that as a jewelry company, I know that there are certain suppliers that can easily provide that uh, source of mine uh, information, be it a De Beers or, a, or an El Rosa, or, and, and through their sales system, um, you know, going to their customers and, and buying from them. Um, and so then that would perhaps exclude, you know, operations that you can't, uh, that you can't easily source. For example, the, the artisanal mining sector that relies on, and, and therefore we might be cutting off that, um, mm. that source of in income for a very uh, important sector of the, of the industry. Mm. So are you seeing initiatives um, or sufficient initiative to make sure that the, particularly the artisanal mining sector is included in um, this and not left behind in, these, um, in this trend? It's a very good point that you're making there. And we're certainly not seeking to see that kind of segmentation. We're fully aware that particularly artisanal and small-scale mining is a very important livelihood for many poor communities um, in, for example, Africa. And for that reason, we've been really highlighting our recommendation that companies should seek to source responsibly from artisanal and small-scale mining. Comparing gold and diamonds... The diamond sector really is behind on that. There are obviously um, a number of projects, sort of closed direct sourcing, closed pipeline kind of projects through standards or otherwise, for example, through the Fair Mind or the Fair Trade Standard, but other, other kinds of projects that have sought to support um, small-scale mining communities to bring them up to standard um, in terms of their social and environmental standards and so on, and then to really source from them. And so there are um, at least a few of those projects. And we know that, you know, a company like Shopar, for example, is sourcing its gold in part from fair mine certified um, or fair trade certified mines in uh, Latin America. And that's very positive. And we would like to see that kind of thing for diamonds. We are aware that there are some initiatives underway as well, for example, with Gemfair by um, sort of connected to the Bears. But obviously, these are not sort of fully operational and um, up and running yet. And we hope really that that could be achieved soon. We think that would be really valuable if, you know, both jewelry companies as well as the, the mining companies and other actors in this space 
would really put a lot of effort into that and to make that work. I, I certainly hope so, and, I, and um, it, it would be interesting. It's something we need to follow up on um, with Gemfair, for example, the, the, the impact that, that COVID-19 has mm. had on their their operations and the ability to expand that um, that important project. You know, generally, we, when we talk about some um, responsible sourcing within the industry, we actually get that feedback from within the trade that, uh, you know, your, your mom and pop retailer or your, your individual dealer um, within the within the B two B business, would come up to me and say, you know, that's easy for for the major retailers and the major suppliers to get on board with it. But it's uh, but for us as a as a single as a single trader, it's an added expense, and and I don't have the capacity to um, to uh, engage with uh, these traceability programs um, necessarily. So so it's an interesting thing that. Mm. That, that I think the industry needs to be aware of or not to to streamline the industry towards the the major players um, as a result of trying to do good in in responsible sourcing it needs to be all inclusive yes absolutely and um, we have heard this argument as well that it's just the big players who can do these kinds of things I want to put that a little bit sort of give a little bit of a question mark to that though I mean, we have obviously looked in our own work primarily at big players or at least mid, mid-sized players, but we have also found that there are these kind of mom and pop shops and small jewelers who are really keen to see um, ethical sourcing and who are really pushing for it. That, I think, is an interesting development. And you have certainly in the US and in the UK and somewhere else in, in, Western, in the Western world, a number of these really small players who are vocal and who really want to see change. And again, comparing a bit with the gold um, sector, for example, the the fair trade gold or the fair mined gold standard are largely used by small players. I mean, Shopar is a bigger one, it's a big one. And I just gave that example. Um, But there are many, many um, really small shops that have uh, cooperation with these standards. So I wonder if, you know, at some point there could be a similar kind of process for, for the diamond sector where small shops could also source from responsibly sourced diamond uh, mines that are small scale and artisanal mines. Yeah, I, I, you know, actually, when as you were talking and uh, it actually charged my memory to initiatives within the, particularly the fair trade gold space that, um, that you're right, it is, there, there are very vocal voices coming from the coming from independence essentially and in a way those retailers those independent retailers have um, in a way it's an opportunity for them because I think they can also show just within their their smaller community you know if they're a community jeweler they can show the um, they can use it as a, as a tool to to tell an effective story to their immediate community and and use it to to really get the word out and uh, and I think you're right I think there is some um, opportunity in the in the diamond space as well although the diamond industry perhaps is um, perhaps it's a more dynamic market and and you know diamond changes hands so um, hmm. so frequently historically um, that that it seems like a m- more of a hurdle to overcome for for these smaller players you know they have their they have their their sources. They have their partners in their in their business for who they've been doing right. business for so long. And so there's a mm-hmm. there's a there's a ripple effect that they don't necessarily want to 
um, disrupt their chain of doing business. But it's an, it's a point well taken, I think, and something that that people need to need to get on board with. Otherwise, I think they will lose market share to to the majors, um, particularly as um, brands are able to to use the responsible it's a responsible sourcing message in their marketing very effectively in this in this particularly in this COVID environment. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, Julianne, uh, just as a, as a final thought, how is Human Rights Watch um, planning to advance this issue? I am, um, you know, having published the report, is this going to be an an ongoing project, or is the report there as a as a resource for for the industry to make improvements and build on until we have another report? Are you working with organisations to help the industry fill those gaps and make further improvements? Um, what is Human Rights Watch um, planning? Um, what is its role in this um, in this issue moving forward? And we see our role as, you know, providing fresh information on human rights issues as they arise. We see our role as sort of um, being a, an observer and a commentator, and perhaps a an organization that can make our recommendations or give input. Um, and as such, we hope that our report you know, is really important and useful to not just the companies that are named in it, but also the broader industry and others who are sort of observing it. In terms of sort of plans and next steps, I mean, we are engaging with as many companies and, um, you know, industry bodies as we can around the launch of the report right now. So the different companies, of course, that are um, named in the report, we're having meetings with quite a few of them, already had quite a few and having more. And we're also engaging with the different um, industry standards and other kinds of certification bodies that we look at. And as you know, we looked at the World Diamond Council. Uh, we looked at um, the Responsible Jewelry Council, for example, and we are engaged in discussions with them directly, but also, for example, um, participate in larger events and things like that. So that we see definitely our role as sort of also being present in the discussions and the debate that is um, carried forward by these organizations, as well as, for example, by the OECD. Um, and we definitely consider ourselves sort of, you know, continuing to do that and monitoring what's happening with the companies because it is a fluid process and there are, um, I'm sure, you know, further changes and uh, developments happening. And we want to monitor that and, you know, where appropriate also reflect on that publicly. Now, you know, I'm not going to um, announce another ranking for 2022. That's not necessarily going to happen. We will see. We have to decide. But we are definitely going to follow up on the companies and report on them further. And there may be another ranking at some point as well. But it may also just be, for now, what we're definitely looking at is sort of more like one-on-one -on -one um, engagement with the companies and um, the wider sort of industry bodies and so on. Right. And I, I, th I think in our analysis, the, the ranking isn't really what's important. What's important is the, is the sentiment. And, uh, and one way or another, by 2022, mm. it will be interesting to, to see the um, further, or hopefully there will be further improvements um, in, the, in the industry. And um, I think the trend is positive. Um, and I think that's the sentiment that I got from the report. Um, but obviously, as you mentioned, there's, there's always more to do. Julianne, thank you so much for, for joining us. It was a, a great pleasure having you on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for the really interesting discussion. Likewise, and uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners got um, a lot from uh, from the discussion. So thank you very much, and and thank you everyone for for joining us again. And uh, we'll see you soon. 